0: To reiterate, just uh, thanks uh, so much for the the gift, the pastor's appreciation gift. The, the reality is, this church does not need a uh, pastor's appreciation month. Uh, you guys are so good and so gracious to us all year long. Uh, we feel very blessed to be part of this congregation. So thank you very much. Grab your Bibles. We're starting a new series today. Grab it. Open up to Matthew. Uh, Chapter 5, and uh, I I was kind of looking for something I could do just till the end of the year. Did you realize that counting today, there's only nine Sundays until 2019? 2019, yeah. And so uh, I knew that we would have a couple Sundays uh, dedicated to Christmas and things like that, so I wanted a series that I could do uh, just in the meantime. And what I did, I went back, I got a list uh, that I started, uh, very cleverly named possible sermon ideas and, and uh, you know uh, sometimes I, I read something or I'll hear something or I'm lying awake in bed at night and this idea will come to me and I write it on this list that well maybe someday that'd make a good series and that, that's where this comes from and uh, I decided what I wanted to do is look at seven questions between now and the end of the year that Jesus asked. Uh, Jesus loved to ask questions. He asked a ton of them. In fact, even making room for the duplicates, you know, questions asked in in each of the gospel presentations, we could look at questions Jesus asked and have enough material to cover one every Sunday for the next two years. Um, but we're just doing seven. And uh, but I picked seven particular ones because you know there's different kinds of questions. Some questions are just for information. Some questions are just you know general questions. And then there's some questions meant to challenge you. And, and those are the kind of questions that grab your heart, uh, that step on your toes, uh, that really make you think. And Jesus was a master at asking those challenging questions. And so we're going to look at seven challenging questions from Jesus uh, between now and the end of the year. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47 actually has two questions in it, but we're going to combine them together as one. Uh, That's what we're going to look at. And it says... For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Father God, again, we thank you for this opportunity to worship together. We're thankful. That we've been able to come to Jesus in salvation and we can come to Jesus each and every day no matter what's happening. And we come right now asking that he would be our teacher, that he would work in our hearts and our lives according to your will and your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so to really understand the, the power and impact of these uh, two questions, we need to, of course, put them in context and some of you may have recognized or immediately seen that the basic context of this is the Sermon on the Mount. These, these verses come in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and one of the main thrusts of the Sermon on the Mount was to show the level of righteousness that must be attained in order to be pleasing and acceptable to God. Now the, the primary religious leaders of Jesus' day were, were called the Pharisees. And that name itself came from a root word which meant to separate from. And they separated themselves from anything and everything and anyone who didn't adhere to their strict, rigid, legalistic interpretation of God's law so that they could be really righteous. As a result, they saw themselves as spiritually far superior to anyone else. And, and, and everybody else around uh, viewed them in that same manner, uh, especially since they kind of promoted that image uh, to, be, to be viewed. They, they wanted to be seen as spiritually above everyone else. And they were considered the epitome of what it meant to be righteous. They believed that man's job was to keep all God's rules, and in order uh, to make sure that you kept all the rules, they made a bunch of other rules uh, that, according to them, protected you from accidentally breaking one of God's rules, and then all these other rules that they made became just as important as any of God's rules. That's the way they lived their lives, and because they were so obsessed with keeping all the rules, they did crazy things. Uh, just just One example. One of God's laws says that you can't eat an animal with its blood. Uh, Therefore, you had to properly, you know, bleed out the cow or sheep or deer or whatever animal it was. Uh, You bleed it out before butchering it and eating it. At one point... Jesus was chastising the Pharisees for their legalistic hearts and and keeping a bunch of rules but neglecting the true meaning or spirit of the law. And he said to them, You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, exactly what did he mean by that? Well, if a Pharisee inadvertently swallowed a bug... I mean, you've done that, right? You're, you're outside, you're winded, you take a deep breath, and a bug fly in your enemy. Before you can spit it out, man, it's down. And you're like, oh, gross. You know, and just swallowed a bug. If a Pharisee swallowed a gnat, he would force himself to vomit called straining out a gnat because that gnat had not been properly bled. It was an animal with the blood in it, and he didn't want to have any you know, unkosher food in his stomach. That's the kind of thing the Pharisees did in order to be righteous. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, proclaimed that you had to be even more righteous than a Pharisee in order to please God. That's the big picture context of the verse we're looking at. But then you narrow it down from there to um, to what Jesus was talking about in that particular section of his sermon. And that section really starts at verse 21. And here we have Jesus... Uh, talk, uh, taking some of the common teachings of of the rabbis and the Pharisees, and showing how they fall short of god 's actual intent of the law and he covers you know such things as as anger and lust and, and keeping your word and and uh, marriage and and vengeance and and stuff like this and He used a formula each time you have heard it said this is the teaching you got from the rabbis or the Pharisees right. But I say to you, he kept using that formula. And, and in particular now, we're looking at what he's teaching in a paragraph that starts at verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the normal accepted teaching of the rabbis and Pharisees at that time. And their instruction was based on a law from the book of Leviticus, a law of God from the book of Leviticus, but they had perverted and twisted its meaning. God's actual command in Leviticus reads this way: "You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself." I am the Lord. Now, what the teachers there did was they they left out the measure or the standard for loving your neighbor. Right, which was as yourself, which is a fairly high standard of loving, right? Because we're all pretty good at you know loving ourselves, and they left that out. But then they added onto it as well, uh, making it not only acceptable, right, but but really practically mandatory that you hate your enemy, uh, something that God never taught in, in the Book of Leviticus or, or anywhere else. So Jesus then corrected their faulty thinking. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now Jesus made it very clear that there was not a certain class of people that you had the right to hate. Uh, Yes, obviously we're called on to love our neighbor, but we must also love our enemy. And the reason for that is given in the following verse so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, again, just quickly to make clear, this doesn't mean that you become a son of God. You don't get saved by loving your enemies. That would uh, make salvation a means of works, and the Bible makes it abundantly clear that you cannot earn uh, salvation. It is a free gift uh, of God's grace for uh, any and all who would ask for it. It simply means that we're called to be like God, like like a son is like his father. We are supposed to be like God in, in particular. The context here is in this area of loving one another. And and so if we're going to be like God, we need to love everyone, even our enemies. And now this brings us up to where Jesus asked his pointed questions that are designed to step on our toes. And the reason they step on our toes is because the question of forces us to stop thinking about someone else who really needs to hear this sermon and to think about ourselves. So the first barbed question in verse 46, for if you, right, you, not, not someone else, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors... Do the same. Jesus is saying, you know, it's it's easy to love people who love you. It's so easy to do that that even the tax collectors do that, and, and that would have been a, a shocking statement to the Pharisees and and actually to every common Jew in the crowd at that time. But also one that was pretty uh, self evident. Um, see, it was shocking because. Everyone believed that nothing good could come from a tax collector. I mean, tax collectors worked for the Roman government, so they were uh, seen as traitors to the country. They were notorious liars and cheats. They were not above uh, using extortion and strong-arm techniques and tactics to increase their own uh, profits. When a good Jew was listing the worst of the worst sinners, tax collectors always made the list usually grouped together with prostitutes and murderers. But what Jesus said about them loving each other was also quite true. I mean, sure, they were outcasts and they were shunned by respectable people. They weren't even allowed to go to the temple. They, they couldn't uh, be a witness in the courtroom because uh, their character was deemed to be so bad that you couldn't trust anything that they said. But even they loved each other. They would encourage and support and have parties for each other. If you love only those who love you, you're no better than a tax collector. And then Jesus goes ahead and piles on with a second question. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now here we We got a second group of, of vilified people in the Jewish eyes, right? A Gentile is a term that covers every person unfortunate enough to be born into this world, not of the Jewish race, which, of course, means all of us, right? They called Gentiles dogs. They would not allow a Gentile into their home. Gentiles were pagans. They worshipped idols. The spiritual standing of a Gentile was even lower than a tax collector. Now, to understand the force of this verse, we also have to look at what the term brother means. This is not limited to your siblings, but rather was a general term to, to refer to other people who were like you, people in your social circle, those who look like you and acted like you and have the same basic standards and, and manner of life that you have. And so look at Jesus' question. If you greet, if you are kind, if you're friendly, if you're sociable, if you're pleasant, if you make an effort to build a positive relationship with only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You're no different than a tax collector or a Gentile. How are you any better than the person you're looking down on? And here's, here's the very clear implication of Jesus, question. If you are a follower of God, a believer in God, if you're a follower of, of Jesus Christ, there should be something more about our lives and especially about the way we love and treat either, other people. There should be a higher standard, a, a noticeable, evident difference. that's the implication of of his question. So what what should the standard be for those of us who have put our faith in God and, and, and following Jesus Christ? What's that measure of love? Well, that comes in verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this sums up this whole section where he's taking these different teachings uh, of, of the rabbis and showing how they fall short, you know, the, the anger and vengeance and marriage and keeping your word and all that kind of stuff. But specifically, it's wrapping up this thought on love. You're to love perfectly, just like your heavenly Father does. We could go to all kinds of scriptures to help us define and find out how God loves. But for the sake of time, we'll just look at one. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the context of that verse helps us really understand what he's meaning because the previous verse, Romans 5, 7, sets up a scenario and and asks kind of a basic question. Hey, would would someone die for a good man? And the answer is, well, you know, maybe sometimes, right? That's the answer. I mean, think of it this way. I would guess that pretty much everybody in this room would qualify as, you know, a good person. We fall into that basic category. So if a gunman walked in here, took this entire room hostage, grabbed one random person, and said, I'm going to kill this person, that is, unless one of you would like to take their place. Now, excluding family members, because, I mean, hopefully you would die for your wife or your children or, you know, this type of thing. Uh, uh, Excluding family members, he, he grabbed somebody else. Would you die for that other person in church? Seriously, no. Your life for this good person. And maybe there's a few in here that might be willing to do that. Some of us might be thinking, well, it kind of depends on which person they grab. (laughs) But that's what sets up the scenario. That's why verse 8 begins with the word but. The contrast. But God. But God. Here's what God did. He loved us while we were still sinners. Sin is abhorrent to God. It's a slap in his face. It's a stab in his back. God cannot even stand to look at sin. And yet while we were in that state of sinful rebellion, Christ died for us. One commentator I read this week put it this way. It is while we were hideous to God that He loved us and died for us. Would you die for a hideous, vile, sinful person? That's the measure of love that Jesus is calling for us to have. Just like your heavenly Father loves you, you love like that. We should love the unlovely, the person outside our comfort zone, and even the antagonist or the bully. You love the person that looks down on you, who ridicules you, who makes fun of you, or that person who disappoints you, who hurts you, who ignores you. You love that person who took advantage of you, who spitefully used you, who discarded you and treated you like trash. Because that's the way God loved. And do you know what I think when I see that standard and that measure of loving? I think, I can't do that. I can Cannot do that. There is no way that I can love my enemy. This person who has sinned against me. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, I have a hard enough time loving my brother. I mean, if we want to get really honest, I sometimes fail at loving my wife that this person who I chose to be my bride and promised to faithfully love. And if I fail at that, how can I possibly love my enemy? And of course, that's the real point of Jesus' question that he asked, right? What more are you doing than others oh yeah we we can all love those who love us back the most sinful person you can think of loves other sinful people like him but in order to do something more we need something more and what we need is Jesus Christ by the way That is the point of the Sermon on the Mount. We need Jesus. In our own power, by our own strength, in our own abilities, we are destined to utterly fail when it comes to loving like God. But when Jesus Christ comes into your life, He begins to transform us and to empower us. And did you know, that you have the ability to love beyond your boundaries and limits and capabilities. And that love is possible because Christ is working in you and because His own love dwells inside of you. Romans 5.5 5 tells us, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. Do you, you know what that verse means? It's telling us that we have, already have, all the love that we need in order to be able to love our enemies. You don't have to pray, and I, I've been guilty of this in the past. You don't have to pray for more love. You, you've got all the love you, you, you need. You've got plenty of it. The love of Christ has been Poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit, that's enough love. I, I think what we really need when it comes to our shortcomings in doing that love is two things. And this is what we need to pray for. Willingness and courage. Courage. Since we have all the love we need through Jesus Christ living within us, what we really need, first of all, is that willingness to love our enemies. And I think if we're honest, that is often our biggest hindrance. We flat out don't want to love someone because they don't deserve it. Now, I'm guessing that Jesus probably had this all figured out when he told us to love our enemies. He probably knew that we would deem most of our enemies as not deserving our love. But he told us to do it anyway, knowing that we couldn't do it unless we were trusting and relying on him. So the question is, are you willing And don't answer that question in the general sense because it's fairly easy to answer it generally, right? Oh, yes, Lord, okay, I'm willing to to love my enemies. we, We have to answer it specifically. When that person, the one that comes to mind as you're thinking about this, the one you see in the grocery store and turn to avoid, when that person, is in front of you. And the Holy Spirit's nudging your heart. Are you willing to love your enemy? We have the capacity to love because of God's love in us, poured out in our hearts, but we need to pray for that willingness. And the great thing is, God will answer that prayer. So the second thing then we need to pray for is courage to love. I mean, once God generates that willingness, even if it's a begrudging willingness, okay, God, I'll love that person, right? We we do that. Once God does that, we still need courage to live it out because you know what? Loving your enemy is hard. And please understand, when we talk about love here, we're not talking about warm, mushy feelings because... Chances are you still don't have any feelings for this person who's your enemy. What it means is that we actually choose to do the loving thing towards that other person. The love that is being talked about here is love in action. And that can take a great deal of courage on our part because it's hard, but it also takes courage because it's easily misunderstood might be misunderstood by those closest to you, your your husband or your wife. They may wonder what you're doing truly loving someone who has hurt you. But if you don't want to be that person who fits into that category of what more are you doing than others? If you want to be that one who would rise up and be above that to be different by the power of Jesus Christ... You can. He poured out his love in you. He will answer that prayer to make you willing and to give you courage. And the next step is simply to choose to do the loving act, regardless of how you feel. And then you choose to do it again and again. And somewhere in that process, God begins to change your heart. And your feelings and your attitude towards your enemy. And it's that kind of love that Jesus Christ said a watching world will see and they will know that you're my disciples. Because you know what? That kind of love isn't natural. That's something beyond the norm, something beyond the ordinary, something beyond the tax collectors and the Gentiles. This is more. Something supernatural that has to come from God. And the world, they're going to want to know about that. Let's pray. Father God, we, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for even these challenging questions that Jesus asks, the questions he asks us. And he asks them because he loves us. And he does want to transform our lives. So God, give us willingness and give us courage. Maybe give us a willingness first to be willing to pray for willingness. Encourage. But help us to be a people that will love even the enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.